You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Paul, remember this is a letter, okay? Paul, a slave of King Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for God's good news, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the sacred writings. The good news about his son, who was descended from David's seed in terms of flesh, and who was marked out powerfully as God's son in terms of the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead, Jesus, the King, our Lord. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about believing obedience among all the nations for the sake of his name. That includes you, too, who are called by Jesus the King. This letter comes to all in Rome who love God, all who are called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and King Jesus the Lord. Let me say first that I thank God for all of you through Jesus the King, because all the world has heard the news of your faith. God is my witness, the God I worship in my spirit and the good news of his son that I will never stop remembering you in my prayers. I ask God again and again that somehow at last I may now be able in his good purposes to come to you. I'm longing to see you. I want to share with you some spiritual blessing to give you strength. That that is, I want to encourage you and be encouraged by you and the faith you and I share. I made plans to come to you. It's just that up till now, something has always gotten in the way. I want to bear fruit among you as I have been doing among the other nations. I'm under obligation to the barbarians as well as to the Greeks. You see, both to the wise and to the foolish. Uh, That's why I'm eager to announce the good news to you too in Rome. I'm not ashamed of the good news. It's God's power bringing salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also equally to the Greek. This is because God's covenant justice is unveiled in it, from faithfulness to faithfulness. As it says in the Bible, the just shall live by faith. For the anger of God is unveiled from heaven against all the ungodliness and injustice performed by people who use injustice to suppress the truth. What can be known of God, you see, is plain to them, since God made it plain to them. There are, of course, things about God which you can't see, namely his eternal power and deity. But ever since the world was created, they have been known and seen the things that he has made. As a result, they have no excuse. They knew God, but didn't honor him as God or thank him. Instead, they learned to think in useless ways, and their unwise heart grew dark. They declared themselves to be wise, but in fact, they became foolish. They swapped the glory of immortal God for the likeness of the image of mortal humans and of birds, animals, and reptiles. So God gave them up to the uncleanness and the desires of their hearts with the result that they dishonored their bodies among themselves. They swapped God's truth for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So God gave them up to shameful desires. Even the women, you see, swap natural sexual practices for unnatural. And the men, too, abandoned natural sexual relations with women and were inflamed with their lust for one another. Men performed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the appropriate repayment for the mistaken ways. Moreover, just as they did not see it fit to hold on to knowledge of God, God gave them up to an unfit mind. So that they would behave inappropriately. They were filled with all kinds of injustice, wickedness, greed, and evil. They were full of envy, murder, enmity, deceit, and cunning. They became gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, self-important, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, unwise, unfaithful, unfeeling, uncaring, They know that God has rightly decreed that people who do things like that deserve death. Uh, But not only do they do them, they give their approval to people who practice them. So you have no excuse, anyone, whoever you are, who sit in judgment. When you judge someone else, you condemn yourself. Because you, who are behaving as a judge, 
are doing the same things. God's judgment falls, we know, in accordance with the truth on those who do such things. But if you judge those who do them and yet do them yourself, do you really suppose that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience? Don't you know that God's kindness is meant to bring you to repentance? But by your hard, unrepentant heart, you're building up a store of anger for yourself on the day of anger. The day when God's just judgment will be unveiled. The God who will repay everyone according to their works. When people patiently do what is good and so pursue the quest for glory and honor and immortality, God will give them the life of the age to come. But when people act out of selfish desire and do not obey the truth, but instead obey injustice, there will be anger and fury. There will be trouble and distress for every single person who does what is wicked, the Jew first and also equally the Greek. And there will be glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, the Jew first and also equally the Greek. God, you see, shows no partiality. Everyone who sinned outside the law, you see, will perish outside the law. And those who sinned from within the law will be judged by means of the law. After all, it isn't those who hear the law who are in the right before God. It's those who do the law who will be declared to be in the right. This is how it works out. Gentiles don't possess the law as their birthright. But whenever they do what the law says, they are a law for themselves, despite not possessing the law. They show that the work of the law was written on their hearts. Their conscience bears witness as well. And their thoughts will run this way and that, sometimes accusing them and sometimes excusing. On the day when, according to the gospel I proclaim, God judges all human secrets through King Jesus. Yeah, but supposing you call yourself a Jew. Uh, supposing you rest your hope in the laws. Uh, supposing you celebrate the fact that God is your God. And that you know what he wants. And that by the law's instruction, you can make appropriate moral distinctions. Supposing you believe yourself to be a guide to the blind, a, a light to people in darkness, a teacher of the foolish, an instructor for children, all because in the law, you possess the outline of knowledge and truth. Well then, if you're going to teach someone else, aren't you going to teach yourself? If you say people shouldn't steal, do you steal? If you say people shouldn't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? If you loathe idols, do you rob temples? If you boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? This is what the Bible says. Because of you, God's name is blasphemed among the nations. Circumcision, you see, has real value for people who keep the law. If, however, you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Uh, meanwhile, if uncircumcised people keep the law's requirements, their uncircumcision will be regarded as circumcision, won't it? So people who are by nature uncircumcised, but who fulfill the law, will pass judgment on people like you, who possess the letter of the law and circumcision, but who break the law. The Jew isn't the person who appears to be one, you see. Uh, nor is circumcision what it appears to be, a matter of physical flesh. The Jew is the one in secret, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, and the spirit rather than the letter. Such a person gets praise, not from humans, but from God. What advantage, then, does the Jew possess? What, indeed, is the point of circumcision? A great deal in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with God's oracles. What follows from that? If some of them were unfaithful to their commission, does their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Certainly not. Let God be true and every human being be false, as the Bible says, so that you may be found in the right in what you say and may win victory when you come to court. But if our being in the wrong proves that God is in the right, what are we going to say? That God is unjust to inflict anger on people? I'm reducing things to a human scale. Certainly not. How then could God judge the world? But if God's truthfulness grows all the greater and brings him glory in and through my falsehood, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? 
And why not do evil so that good may come? As some people blasphemously say about us, and as some allege that we say, uh, people like that at least deserve the judgment they get. What then? Are we in fact better off? No, certainly not. I have already laid down this charge, you see. Jews as well as Greeks are all under the power of sin. This is what the Bible says. No one is in the right. Nobody at all. No one understands or goes looking for God. All of them alike have wandered astray. Together they have all become futile. None of them behaves kindly. No, not one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The poison of vipers is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are quick when there's blood to be shed. Disaster and wretchedness are in their past. And they did not know the way of peace. They have no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it is speaking to those who are in the law. The purpose of this is that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be brought to the bar of God's judgment. No mere mortal, you see, can be declared to be in the right before God on the basis of the works of the law. What you get through the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, quite apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bore witness to it, God's covenant justice has been displayed. God's covenant justice comes into operation through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. For the benefit of all who have faith, for there is no distinction, all sinned and fell short of God's glory. And by God's grace, they are freely declared to be in the right, to be members of the covenant, through the redemption which is found in the Messiah, Jesus. God put Jesus forth as a place of mercy, through faithfulness, by means of his blood. He did this to demonstrate his covenant justice because of the passing over and divine forbearance of sins committed beforehand. This was to demonstrate his covenant justice in the present time. That is, that he himself is in the right. That he declares to be in the right everyone who trusts in the faithfulness of Jesus. So what happens to boasting? It is ruled out. Through what sort of law? The law of works. No. Through the law of faith, we calculate, you see, that that a person is declared to be in the right on the basis of faith, apart from works of the law. Or does God only belong to the Jews? Doesn't he belong to the nations as well? Yes, of course, to the nations as well, since God is one. He will make the declaration in the right over the circumcised on the basis of faith and over the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then abolish the law through faith? Certainly not. Rather, we establish the law. What shall we say then? Have we found Abraham to be our ancestor in a human fleshly sense? After all, if Abraham was reckoned in the right on the basis of works, he has grounds to boast, but not in God's presence. So what does the Bible say? Abraham believed God and it was calculated in his favor, putting him in the right. Now, when someone works, the reward they get is not calculated on the basis of generosity, but on the basis of what they are owed. But if someone doesn't work, but simply believes in the one who declares the ungodly to be in the right, that person's faith is calculated in their favor, putting them in the right. We see the same thing when David speaks of the blessing that comes to someone whom God calculates to be in the right, apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawbreaking is forgiven and whose sins have been covered over. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not calculate sin. So then, does this blessing come on circumcised people or on uncircumcised? This is the passage we quoted. His faith was calculated to Abraham as indicating that he was in the right. How was it calculated? When he was circumcised or when he was uncircumcised? It wasn't when he was circumcised. It was when he was uncircumcised. He received circumcision as a sign and seal of the status of covenant membership on the basis of faith, which he had when he was still uncircumcised. This was so that he could be the father of all who believe even when uncircumcised, 
so that the status of covenant membership can be calculated to their account as well. He is also, of course, the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who follow the steps of faith which Abraham possessed while still uncircumcised. The promise, you see, didn't come to Abraham or to his family through the law. The promise, that is, that he would inherit the world. It came through the covenant of justice of faith. For if those who belong to the law are going to inherit, and for if those who belong to the law are going to inherit, then faith is empty. And the promise has been abolished. For the law stirs up God's anger. But where there is no law, there is no law breaking. That's why it's by faith. So that it can be accordance with grace. So that the promise can thereby be validated for the entire family. And not simply those who are from the law, but those who share the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Just as the Bible says, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Uh, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. Against all hope, but still in hope, Abraham believed that he would become the father of many nations. In line with what had been said to him. That's what your family will be like. He didn't become weak in faith as he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. In the lifelessness of Sarah's womb, he didn't waver in unbelief when he was faced with God's promise. Instead, he grew strong in faith and gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God had the power to accomplish what he had promised. That is why it was calculated to him in terms of covenant justice. But it wasn't written for him alone that it was calculated to him. It was written for us as well. It will be calculated to us, too, since we believe in the one who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was handed over because of our trespasses and raised because of our justification. The result is this. Since we have been declared in the right on the basis of faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Through him, we have been allowed to approach by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we celebrate the hope of the glory of God. That's not all. We also celebrate in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces patience. Patience produces a well-formed character. And character like that produces hope. Hope, in its turn, does not make us ashamed. But the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is all based on what the Messiah did. Uh, while we were still weak, at that very moment, he died on behalf of the ungodly. It's a rare thing to find someone who will die on behalf of an upright person, though I suppose someone might be brave enough to die for a good person. But this is how God demonstrates his love for us. The Messiah died for us while we were still sinners. How much more in that case... Since we have been declared to be in the right by his blood, are we going to be saved by him from God's coming anger? When we were enemies, you see, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. If that's so, how much more, having already been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? That's not all. We even celebrated God through our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one human being and death through sin, and in that way death spread to all humans and that all sinned, sin was in the world, you see, even in the absence of the law. Though sin is not calculated when there is no law. But death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over the people who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam had done. Adam, who was the imprint of the one who would come. But it isn't as the trespass, so also the gift. For if many died by one person's trespass, how much more has God's grace and the gift in grace 
through the one person, Jesus the Messiah, abounded to the many. And nor is it as through the sin of one, so also the gift. For the judgment which followed the one trespass resulted in a negative verdict, but the free gift which followed many trespasses resulted in a positive verdict. For if, by the trespass of the one, death reigned through that one, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of covenant membership of being in the right reign in life through the one man, Jesus the Messiah? So, then, just as, through the trespass of one person, the result was condemnation for all people, even so, through the upright act of one person, the result is justification. Life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one person, many receive the status of sinner, so through the obedience of one person, many will receive the status of in the right. The law came in alongside, so that trespass may be filled out to its full extent. Uh, But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that, just as sin reigned in death, even so, through God's faithful covenant justice, grace might reign in the life of the age to come through Jesus the Messiah, our Lord. What are we to say then? Shall we continue in the state of sin so that grace may increase? Certainly not. We died to sin. How can we still live in it? Uh, Don't you know that all who were baptized into the Messiah, Jesus, were baptized into his death? That means that we were buried with him through baptism into death so that just as the Messiah was raised from the dead through the Father's glory, we too behave with a new quality of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. This is what we know. Our old humanity was crucified with the Messiah so that the bodily solidarity of sin might be abolished and that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. A person who has died, you see, has been declared free from all charges of sin. But if we died with the Messiah, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that the Messiah, having been raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has any authority over him. The death he died, you see, he died to sin. Once and only once. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, you too must calculate yourselves as being dead to sin and alive to God. In the Messiah, Jesus. So don't allow sin to rule in your mortal body, uh, to make you obey its desires. Nor should you present your limbs and organs to sin to be used for its wicked purposes. Uh, Rather, present yourselves to God as people alive from the dead. And your limbs and organs to God to be used for the righteous purposes of his covenant. Sin won't actually rule over you, you see. Since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Uh, Don't you know that if you present yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you really are slaves of the one you obey, whether that happens to be sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to final vindication. Thank God. Though you were once slaves to sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the pattern of teaching to which you were committed. You were freed from sin, and now you have been enslaved to God's covenant justice. I'm using a human picture because of your natural human weakness. For just as you presented your limbs and organs as slaves to uncleanness and to one degree of lawlessness after another, so now present your limbs and organs as slaves to covenant justice, which leads to holiness. When you were slaves of sin, you see, you were free with respect to covenant justice. What fruit did you ever have from the things from which you are now ashamed? Their destination is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and enslaved to God, you have fruit for holiness 
This destination is the life of the age to come. Uh, the wages paid by sin, you see, are death. But God's free gift is the life of the age to come in the Messiah, Jesus, our Lord. Surely you know, my dear family, I am, after all, talking to the people who know the law, that the law rules a person as long as that person is alive. The law binds a married woman to her husband during his lifetime, but if she dies, she is free from the law as regards her husband. Sorry, if he dies, she is free from the law as regards her husband. So then, she will be called an adulteress if she goes with another man while her husband is alive. But if the husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress if she goes with another man. In the same way, my dear family, you too died to the law through the body of the Messiah. So you could belong to someone else, uh, to the one who was raised from the dead, in fact, so that we could bear fruit for God. For when we were living a mortal human life, the passions of sins, which were through the law, were at work in our limbs and organs, causing us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been cut loose from the law. Uh, we have died to the thing in which we were held tightly. The aim is that we should now be enslaved to the new life of the spirit on the old life of the letter. What then shall we say? Uh, that the law is sin? Certainly not. But I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known covetousness if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin grabbed its opportunity through the commandment and produced all kinds of covetousness within me. Apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive, apart from the law, when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. The commandment which pointed to life turned out, in my case, to bring death. For sin grabbed its opportunity through the commandment. It deceived me, and through it, killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, upright, and good. Was it that good thing then that brought death to me? Certainly not. On the contrary, it was sin in order that it might appear as sin, working through the good thing and producing death in me. This was in order that sin might become very sinful indeed, through the commandment. We know, you see, that the law is spiritual. I, however, am made of flesh, sold as a slave under sin's authority. I don't understand what I do. I don't do what I want, you see, but I do what I hate. So if I do what I don't want to do, I am agreeing that the law is good. But now it is no longer I that do it. It's sin living within me. I know, you see, that no good thing lives in me uh, that is in my human flesh. And for I can will the good, but I can't perform it. For I don't do the good thing I want to do, but I end up doing the evil thing I don't want to do. So if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I doing it. It's sin living inside me. This then is what I find about the law. When I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in God's law, you see, according to my inmost self. But I see another law, my limbs and organs, fighting a battle against the law of my mind and taking me as a prisoner in the law of sin, which is in my limbs and organs. What a miserable person I am. Who's going to rescue me from this body of death? Thank God through Jesus, our King and Lord. So then, left to my own self, I am enslaved to God's law with my mind, but to sin's law with my human flesh. So therefore, there's no condemnation for those in the Messiah Jesus. Why not? Because the law of the spirit of life in the Messiah Jesus released you from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, being weak because of human flesh, was incapable of doing. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering. And right there in the flesh, he condemned sin. This was in order that the right and proper verdict of the law could be fulfilled in us as we live not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Look at it like this. People whose lives are determined by human flesh focus their minds 
on matters to do with the flesh. But people whose lives are determined by the Spirit focus their minds on matters to do with the Spirit. Focus the mind on the flesh, and you'll die. But focus it on the Spirit, and you'll have life and peace. The mind focused on the flesh, you see, is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. In fact, it can't. Those who are determined by the flesh can't please God. But you're not people of flesh. You're people of the Spirit. If indeed God's Spirit lives within you. Note that anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of the Messiah doesn't belong to Him. But if the Messiah is in you, the body is indeed dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of covenant justice. So then, if the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives within you, the one who raised the Messiah from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies too, through his Spirit who lives within you. So then, my dear family, we are in debt, but not to human flesh to live our life in that way. If you live in accordance with the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All who are led by the Spirit of God, you see, are God's children. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery, did you? To go back again into a state of fear. But you received the spirit of sonship, in whom we call out Abba, Father. When that happens, it is the Spirit itself giving supporting witness to what our own spirit is saying, that we are God's children. And if we're children, we are also heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with the Messiah as long as we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. This is how I work it out. The sufferings we go through in the present time are not worth putting in the scale alongside the glory that is going to be unveiled for us. Yes, creation itself is on tiptoe with expectation, eagerly awaiting the moment when God's children will be revealed. Creation, you see, was subjected to pointless futility, not out of its own volition, but because of the one who placed it in this subjection in the hope that creation itself would be freed from its slavery to decay, to enjoy the freedom that comes when God's children are glorified. Let me explain. Uh, we know that the entire creation is groaning together and going through labor pains together up until the present time. Not only so, we too, who have the first fruits of the Spirit's life within us, are groaning with ourselves as we eagerly await our adoption. The redemption of our body. We were saved, you see, in hope. But hope isn't hope if you can't if you sorry. But hope isn't hope if you can see it. Who hopes for what they can see? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it eagerly, but also patiently. In the same way, too, the Spirit comes alongside and helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for. Uh, we don't know what to pray for as we ought to. But that same spirit pleads on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. And the searcher of hearts knows what our spirit is thinking because the spirit pleads for God's people according to God's will. We know, in fact, that God works all things together for good to, to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Those he foreknew, you see, he also marked out in advance to be shaped according to the model of the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn of a large family. And those he marked out in advance, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to all of this? If God is for us, who is against us? God, after all, did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. How then will he not with him Freely give us all things to us. Who will bring a charge against God's chosen ones? Is God who declares them in the right? Who's going to condemn? Is the Messiah, Jesus, who has died, or rather has been raised, who is at God's right hand and who also prays on our behalf? Who shall separate us from the Messiah's love? 
suffering or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As the Bible says, because of you, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep destined for slaughter. No. In all these things, we are completely victorious through the one who loved us. I am persuaded, you see, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor the present, nor the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God and King Jesus our Lord. I'm speaking the truth in the Messiah. I'm not lying. I call my conscience as witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and endless pain in my heart. Left to my own self, I am half inclined to pray that I would be accursed, cut off from the Messiah on behalf of my own family, my own flesh and blood relatives. They are Israelites. The sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises all belong to them. The patriarchs are their ancestors, and it is from them, according to the flesh, that the Messiah has come, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it can't be the case that God's word has failed. Not all who are from Israel, you see, are in fact Israel. Nor is it the case that all the children count as the seed of Abraham. No, in Isaac shall your seed be named. Uh, that means that it isn't the flesh and blood children who are God's children. Rather, it is the children of the promise who will be calculated as seed. This was what the promise said, you see. Around the time I shall return and Sarah shall have a son. And that's not all. Uh, the same thing happened when Rebecca conceived children by one man, our ancestor Isaac. When they had not yet been born, he had done nothing, either good or bad, so that God had in mind in making his choice, uh, might in in making his choice might come to pass. Not because of works, but because of the one who calls it. It was said to her, "The elder shall serve the younger." As the Bible says, "I love Jacob, but I hated Esau." So, what are we going to say? Is God unjust? Certainly not. He says to Moses, you see, I will have mercy on those on whom I will have mercy, and I will pity those that I will pity. So then, it doesn't depend on human willing or on human effort. It depends on God who shows mercy. For the Bible says to Pharaoh, this is why I've raised you up, to show my power in you, and so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on the one who he wants, and he hardens the one who he wants. You shall say to me then, so why does he still blame people? Uh, who can stand against his purpose? Are you a mere human being going to answer back to God? Surely the clay won't say to the potter, why did you make me like this? It's the most inflection I'm putting in my reading tonight just to wake you up. Doesn't the potter have authority over the clay so that he can make... Make from the same lump one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Supposing God wanted to demonstrate his anger and make known his power, and for that reason put up very patiently with the vessels of anger created for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, uh, the ones he prepared in advance for glory, including us, whom he called not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. This is what he says in Hosea. I will call not my people my people, and not my beloved I will call beloved. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Even in the number of Israel's sons are like the sand by the sea. Only a remnant shall be saved. For the Lord will bring judgment on the earth, complete and decisive. And as Isaiah said in an earlier passage, if the Lord of hosts had not left us seed, we would have become like Sodom and been made like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the nations who are not aspiring toward covenant membership have obtained covenant membership, but is covenant membership based on faith? Israel, meanwhile, though eager for the law, which defined the covenant, did not attain the law. Why not? 
because they did not pursue it on the basis of faith, but as though it was on the basis of works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As the Bible says, look, I am placing in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will trip people up. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. My dear family, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God on their behalf is for their salvation. I can testify on their behalf that they have a zeal for God, but it is not based on knowledge. Uh, they were ignorant, you see, of God's covenant faithfulness. They were trying to establish a covenant status of their own, so they didn't submit to God's faithfulness. The Messiah, you see, is the goal of the law, so that the covenant membership may be available for all who believe. Moses writes, you see, about the covenant membership defined by the law, that the person who performs the law's commands shall live in them. But the faith-based covenant membership puts it like this. Don't say in your heart who shall go up to heaven. In other words, to bring the Messiah down. Or who shall go down into the depths. In other words, to bring the Messiah up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we proclaim. Because if you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? Because the way to covenant membership is by believing with the heart. And the way to salvation is by professing with the mouth. The Bible says, you see, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Since the same Lord is the Lord of all and is rich toward all who call upon him. All who call upon the name of the Lord, you see, will be saved. So how are they to call on someone that they haven't, when they haven't believed in him? And how are they going to believe if they don't hear? And how will they hear without someone announcing it to them? And how will people make the announcement unless they are sent? As the Bible says, how beautiful are the feet of the ones who bring good news of good things. But not all obeyed the good news. Isaiah asks, you see, Lord, who's believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of the Messiah. This might make us ask, did they not hear? But they certainly did. Their sound went out into all the world, and their words to the ends of the earth. But I ask, did Israel not know? To begin with, Moses says, I will make you jealous with an odd nation and stir you to anger with a foolish people. Then Isaiah, greatly daring, puts it like this. I was found by those who were not looking for me. I became visible to those who were not asking for me. But in respect of Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disbelieving and disagreeable people. So I ask, has God abandoned his people? Certainly not. I myself am an Israelite. From the seed of Abraham and the tribe of Benjamin, God has not abandoned his people, the ones he chose in advance. Don't you know that the Bible says in passages about Elijah, describing how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, he says, they have killed your prophets. They have thrown down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. But what is the reply from the divine word? I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Did Israel not obtain what it was looking for? Well, the chosen ones obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as the Bible says. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that wouldn't see and ears that wouldn't hear, right down to this present day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block and a punishment for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they can't see, make their backs bend low forever. So I ask them, have they tripped up in such a way as to fall completely? Certainly not. Rather, by their trespass, salvation has come to the nations. 
in order to make them jealous. If their trespass means riches for the world and their impoverishment means riches for the nations, how much more will their fullness mean? Now, I'm speaking to you, Gentiles. Insofar as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I celebrate my particular ministry so that, if possible, I can make my flesh jealous and save some of them. If their casting away, you see, means reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Take another illustration. If the first fruits are holy, so is the whole lump. And another, if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and, and came to share in the root of the olive, which is rich with its rich sap, don't boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember this. It isn't you that supports the root, but the root that supports you. I know what you'll say next. Branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. That's all very well. They were broken off because of unbelief. But you stand firm by faith. Don't get big ideas about it. Instead, be afraid. After all, if God didn't spare the natural branches, there's a strong possibility he won't spare you. Know carefully then that God is both kind and severe. He is severe to those who have fallen, but he is kind to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And they too, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted back in. God is able, you see, to graft them back in. For if you were cut out by what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will they, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? My dear brothers and sisters, you mustn't get the wrong idea and think too much of yourselves. That is why I don't want you to remain in ignorance of this mystery. A hardening has come for a time upon Israel until the fullness of the nations comes in. That is how all Israel shall be saved. As the Bible says, the deliverer will come from Zion and will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This will be my covenant with them whenever I take away their sins. As regards the good news, they are enemies for your sake. As regards God's choice, they are beloved because of the patriarchs. God's gifts and God's call, you see, cannot be undone. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy through their disobedience, so they have now disbelieved as well. In order that, through the mercy which has come your way, they too may now receive mercy. For God has shut up all the people in disobedience, so that he may have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, we cannot search his judgments. We cannot fathom his ways for... Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has given him counsel? Who has given a gift to him which needs to be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. Glory to him forever. Amen. So my dear family, this is my appeal to you by the mercies of God. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Worship like this brings your mind into line with God's. What's more, don't let yourselves be squeezed into the shape dictated by the present age. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can work out what God's will is, what is good, acceptable, and complete. Through the grace which was given to me, I have to say to each one of you, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. Rather, think soberly, in line with faith. The true standard which God has marked out for each of you. As in one body we have many limbs and organs, you see, and all parts have different functions, so we, many as we are, are one body in the Messiah, and individually we belong to one another. Well then, we have gifts that differ in accordance with the grace that has been given to us, and we must use them appropriately. If it is prophecy, we must prophesy according to the pattern of the faith. If it is serving, we must work at our serving. If teaching, at our teaching. If exhortation, at our exhortation. If giving, with generosity. 
If leading with energy, if doing acts of kindness with cheerfulness, love must be real. Hate what is evil. Stick fast to what is good. Be truly affectionate in showing love for one another. Uh, compete with each other in giving mutual respect. Don't get tired of working hard. Be on fire with the Spirit. Work as slaves for the Lord. Celebrate your hope. Be patient in suffering. Give constant energy to prayer. Contribute to the needs of God's people. Make sure you are hospitable to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them. Don't curse them. Celebrate with those who are celebrating. Mourn with the mourners. Come to the same mind with one another. Don't give yourselves airs, but associate with the humble. Don't get too clever for yourselves. Never repay evil anyone evil for evil. Uh, think through that which think through what will seem good to everyone who is watching. If it's possible, as far as you can, live at peace with all people. Uh, don't take revenge, my dear people, but allow God's anger room to work. The Bible says, after all, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. If you do this, you'll pile up burning coals on his head. Don't let evil conquer you. Rather, conquer evil with good. Every person must be subject to the ruling authorities. There is no authority you see except from God. And those that exist have been put in place by God. As a result, anyone who rebels against authority is resisting what God has set up. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terrors for people who do good, but only for people who do evil. If you want to have no fear of the ruling power, do what is good, and it will praise you. It is God's servant, you see, for you and your good. But if you do evil, be afraid. The sword it carries is no empty gesture. It is God's servant, you see, an agent of justice to bring his anger on evildoers. That is why it is necessary to submit. Uh, that is why it is necessary to submit, not only to avoid punishment, but because of conscience. That too is why you pay taxes. The officials in question are God's ministers, tending to this very thing. So pay each of them what is owed, tribute to who collected, revenue to those who collected, respect those who should be respected, honor the people you ought to honor. Don't owe anything to anyone except the debt of mutual love. If you love your neighbor, you see, you have fulfilled the law. Commandments like don't commit adultery, don't kill, don't steal, don't covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love. Love does no wrong to its neighbor. So love is a fulfillment of the law. This is all the more important because you know what time it is. The hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. Our salvation, you see, is nearer now than it was when we first came to faith. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let's put off the works of darkness and, and put on the armor of light. Let's behave appropriately. As in the daytime, and not in wild parties and drunkenness, not in orgies and shameless immorality, but in bad, not, not in bad temper and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus the Messiah, don't make any allowance for the flesh and its lusts. Welcome someone who is weak in faith, but not in order to have disputes on difficult points. One person believes it's all right to eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. The one who eats should not despise the one who does not. And the one who does not should not condemn the one who does, because God has welcomed them. Who do you think you are to judge someone else's servants? They stand or fall before their own master. And stand they will, because their master can make them stand. One person reckons one day more important than another. Someone else regards all days as equally important. Each person must make up their own mind. Uh, the one who celebrates the day does so in honor of the Lord. Uh, the one who eats does so in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. The one who does not eat abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. None of us... None of us lives to ourselves. None of us dies to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. 
That was why the Messiah died and came back to life. So that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. You then, why do you condemn your fellow Christian? Or you, why do you despise a fellow Christian? We must all appear before the judgment seat of God, as the Bible says. As I live, says the Lord, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, we must give an account of ourselves to God. Do not then pass judgment on one another any longer. If you want to exercise your judgment, do so on this question. How to avoid placing obstacles of stumbling blocks in front of a fellow family member. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, except that some things do become unclean for the person who regards them as such. For if your brother or sister is being harmed by what you eat, you are no longer behaving in accordance with love. Don't let your food destroy someone for whom the Messiah died. So don't let someone who is good for you, so don't let something that is good for you make other people blaspheme. God's kingdom, you see, isn't about food and drink, but about justice, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Anyone who serves the Messiah like this pleases God and deserves respect from other people. So then, let's find and follow the way of peace and discover how to build each other up. Don't pull down God's work on account of food. Everything is pure, but it becomes evil for anyone who causes offense when they eat. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or anything else which makes your fellow Christian stumble. Hold firmly to the faith which you have as a matter between yourself and God. When you've thought something through and can go ahead without passing judgment on yourself, God's blessing on you. Uh, But anyone who doubts is condemned, even in the act of eating, because it doesn't spring from faith. Whatever is not of faith is sin. We, the strong ones, should bear with the frailty of the weak and not please ourselves. Each one of us should please our neighbor for his or her good, to build them up. The Messiah, you see, did not please himself. Instead, the Bible says, the reproaches of those who reproached you are fallen on me. Whatever was written ahead of time, you see, was written for us to learn from. So that through patience and through the encouragement of the Bible, we might have hope. May the God of patience and encouragement grant you to come to a common mind among yourselves in accordance with the Messiah Jesus, so that with one mind and one mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus the Messiah. Welcome one another, therefore, as the Messiah has welcomed you to God's glory. Let me tell you why. The Messiah became a servant of the circumcised people in order to demonstrate the truthfulness of God. That is, to confirm the promises of the patriarchs and to bring the nations to praise God for his mercy. As the Bible says, that is why I will praise you among the nations and will sing to your name. And again it says, rejoice you nations with his people. And again, praise the Lord all nations. Let all the people sing his praise. And Isaiah says once more, there shall be the root of Jesse, the one who rises up to rule the nations. The nations shall hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. When I think of you, my dear family, I myself am thoroughly convinced that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and well able to give one another instruction. But I've written to you very boldly at some points, calling things to your mind through the grace which God has given to me to enable me to be a minister of the King Jesus for the nations, working in the priestly service of God's good news so that the offering of the nations may be acceptable, sanctified in the Holy Spirit. This is the glad confidence I have in Jesus, in King Jesus, and in God's own presence. Far be it from me, you see, to speak about anything except what the Messiah has accomplished through me for obedience of the nations in word and deed. In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of God's Spirit, I have completed announcing the good news of the Messiah from Jerusalem around as far as Elycrium. Uh, My driving ambition has been to announce the good news in places where the Messiah has not been named, so that I can avoid building on anyone else's foundation. Instead, as the Bible says, people who hadn't been told about him will see. People who hadn't heard him will understand. That's why I have faced so many obstacles to stop me coming to you. 
But now, finding myself with no more room in these regions, I have a great longing to come to you at last after so many years. And so to make my way to Spain, you see, I'm hoping to see you as I pass through and to be sent on my way there by you once I have been refreshed by you for a while. Now, though, I'm going to Jerusalem to render service to God's people. Macedonia and Achaia, you see, have happily decided to enter into partnership with the poor believers in Jerusalem. They were eager to do this, and indeed, they owe them a debt. If the nations have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessing, it is right and proper that they should minister to their earthly needs. So when I have completed this and tied up all loose ends, I will come to you. I will come via, I will come via you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I shall come with the full blessing of the Messiah. I urge you, my dear family, through our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, and through the love of the Spirit, fight the battle for me in your prayers to God on my behalf, so that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, and so that my service for Jerusalem may be welcomed gladly by God's people. If this happens, I will come to you in joy through the will of God and be refreshed by being with you. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let me introduce you to our sister, Phoebe. She is a deacon in the church at Century. I want you to welcome her in the Lord as is proper for one of God's people. Please give her whatever practical assistance she may need from you. She has been a benefactor to many people, myself included. Greek Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in King Jesus, they put their lives on the line for me. It isn't only me, but all the Gentile churches that owe them a debt of gratitude. Greet the church at their house as well. Greet my dear Epaneatis. Uh, he was the first fruits of the Messiah's harvest in Asia. Greet Mary, who worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives and fellow prisoners who are well known among the apostles and who were in the Messiah before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in the Messiah, my dear Stachys. Greet Apelles, who has proved his worth in the Messiah. Greet the people whom Aristopulus uh, in his household. Greet my relative Herodion. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the household of Narcissus. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have worked hard in the Lord. Greet dear Persis, who has done a great deal of work in the Lord. Greet Rufus, one of the Lord's chosen, and also his mother, my mother too, in effect. Greet Asinatrius, Phlegion, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the family with them. Greet Philogius and Julia, Nereus and his sister, Olympus too, and all God's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the Messiah's churches send you greetings. I urge you, my dear family, to watch out for those who cause divisions and problems. Contrary to teaching you learned, avoid them. People like that are serving their own appetites instead of the Lord, the Messiah. They deceive the hearts of simple-minded people with their smooth and flattering speech. Your obedience, you see, is well known to all, and so I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise when it comes to good and innocent. I want you to be wise when it comes to good and innocent when it comes to evil. The God of peace will quickly crush the Satan under your feet. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends you greetings, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my relatives. I, Tertius, the scribe for this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and the whole church, sends you greetings. Erastus, the city treasurer, sends you greetings, as does another brother, Cordus. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, the proclamation of Jesus the Messiah in accordance with the unveiling of the mystery kept hidden for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings according to the command of the eternal God for the obedience of faith among all the nations to the only wise God through Jesus the Messiah to whom be glory to the coming ages. Amen. This will be a service you remember fondly or with hatred, but it will be a service you remember. Uh, this is a very dense and confusing book. Uh, if you followed all of it in that whole time, please preach the next few months because we need your help. Um, it's very dense and things change from page to page. 
He's all over the place, and I'm excited to dive into it. You know, when we preached on Revelation, about a year before that, I knew nothing about it. And then we started a Bible study here, and it forced me to try to understand this better. Romans is like the theological masterpiece of the Bible. There's nothing like it. It is held in regard as like one of the greatest letters in the Christian faith of all time. And I'm excited that as we go through it, that I'll learn more, that we'll learn more, and that hopefully we'll come to a better understanding, not only of what Paul was saying, but as to what our identity is, what our calling is, where we're headed. That's what understanding Revelation did more for me. I thank you for the grace of taking 60 to 70 minutes to do this tonight. Uh, and if you're new here, no, we're all good. I don't have to apologize. All right. Um, so with that, I'm going to pray, and I'll let you go. God, uh, throughout the book of Romans, there's a lot of different um, passages that uh, leave me asking questions, and a lot of different passages that just pop with color, get stuck in my head. Um, I'm sure that's the same for people here, too. I, I pray that the things that stuck out to them tonight, that that would stay with them. I pray that we remember this is your holy, sacred word that we can't overturn it, where there's parts that we don't like, that we can't just pitch them out the window. We can get better understanding of them, um, but we can't pitch them. Uh, where there's parts that uh, uh, we don't understand, that um, you would grant us the wisdom to, to come to understand it, not just uh, through faith, not just through your Holy Spirit, but also through the different kinds of cultural studies will do to try to understand the situation in Romans. But God, tonight, we just join with the saints of old. I'm, I'm sure when this letter came in to the Romans, uh, that at some point it probably made it in front of the church and they read it to everyone. And today we, we re relive that out, if that happened. So I imagine many of the letters, as obviously they were copied and passed around, made their way in front of the church for everyone to listen, to think over. God, we know that Paul is dense. We know that Paul is so long-winded that he once killed a kid by being born, I guess. And the kid just fell asleep on the second floor and passed out and hit the ground and died. Fortunately, Jesus, you raised him back to life through the power of the Holy Spirit as Paul prayed. Um, but we know that that denseness can sometimes make us tune out too. So would your Holy Spirit grant us the ability to hear what you need to say? when we understand and when we don't understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace. We will catch you guys next Sunday as we dive into Romans and just a, just a part of it, not the, not the whole thing. All right, have a good one.